0: Um, this evening's talk is going to be called Be an Island Unto Yourself. I'd like to uh, just reflect back on a couple of um, passages I cited earlier on. The first of Te Shan, who uh, said, realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. And I wonder in the last days whether that has become more or less clear, assuming you've even remembered it. And then we have the, um, the comment of, of Lin Chi, that there is a true person of no status constantly going in and out of the face of each one of you. Now, both these um, injunctions are pointing very much to the same thing, namely that there is a way of being in this world, of being with ourselves, of being with others, that is not dictated by the fears, and the desires, and the attachments, and the jealousies, and the hesitations of of me, me, Stephen, the person who's um, constantly in my thoughts, constantly running the monologue. But if that can somehow be put aside, or seen through, then we touch within ourselves not just some kind of empty void, but rather a sense of being vibrantly alive, but not in such a way that we feel that we have to hold on to anything. I think in some ways, um, this is very much what one experiences, for example, in the midst of any creative activity whether it be painting or dancing, that uh, there are moments at which um, the the self-conscious ego uh, somehow is suspended. It often feels magical. And likewise, it's not something you can contrive to achieve, nor is it something that you can be assured will last for very long. But I sense that for many of us, possibly for all of us, we know what such moments can be, however fleeting, however ephemeral. And yet we touch something at that moment in our lives when we are really living. We're really in touch with ourselves, with the world, without hesitation. We might speak of this as a kind of spontaneity, It's also very much a kind of autonomy. One of the characteristics the Buddha ascribed to the person or a person who has has entered the stream, which is the Pali expression, namely a person who has authentically uh, entered the Eightfold Path, is that such a person is no longer dependent upon the views of others. That there is in that moment a a going beyond belief. It's not that we now believe in what the Buddha taught, or in another tradition what the Bible says, or whatever, but we now know something for ourselves intuitively, uh, maybe even quasi-physically. And that becomes the ground of our life. And yet everywhere we go in Buddhism, and I'm pretty sure this is the case with other spiritual traditions too, we continuously encounter institutions that embody hierarchies of power in which one person or group of people are quite Definitely in charge, and the ordinary person, i.e., you or me, is somehow expected in more or less overt ways to submit to that authority. And again, it's not saying that the people who teach in such centers or temples are nasty despots, cruel people, they're not. But there will be some kind of um, communal behavior, whether it's a question of bowing, whether it's a question of who gets lunch first, or whether it's a question of who sits on the highest seat or throne, that tacitly or otherwise affirms a certain pecking order of where authority lies and, by implication, where it doesn't. And in varying degrees, a certain conformity is expected of us. And in some senses, um, we're not really supposed to think for ourselves. And so there seems to be a conflict between the structure of religious institutions and the injunctions... Of people like Deshan, of people like Linji, of the Buddha himself, which are very um, uh, powerful, visceral um, suggestions to be your own person, to be a true person with no rank. The abolition of rank and status—it really has nothing much to do with anything, apart from how institutions might need to function in the social world. Now this is a dilemma, and a dilemma I think that has beset Buddhism, and I'm just going to speak of Buddhism uh, from this point on, but I think what we're saying extends far wider. This is something that has bedeviled Buddhism from the word go, and that's what I'd like to look at this evening. But let's start with uh, another passage from Lin Chi, in which he makes his his views about the spiritual teacher abundantly clear. (laughs) Followers of the way, he says, you take the words that come out of the mouths of a bunch of old teachers to be a description of the true way. You think, oh, this is a most wonderful teacher and friend. I have only the mind of a common mortal. I would never dare to fathom such venerableness. Blind idiots. You go through life with this kind of understanding, betraying your own two eyes, cringing and faltering like a donkey on an icy road, saying... I would never dare speak ill of such a good friend, such a good teacher. I'd be afraid of making negative verbal karma. I suspect we've all been there. (laughs) Followers of the way, Lin Chi continues. The really good friend, good friend is Kalyan Mitra, a spiritual teacher (coughs) if you want. The really good friend is someone who dares to speak ill of the Buddha speak ill of the patriarchs, pass judgment on anyone in the world, throw away the Tripitaka, the canon, that stuff, revile those little children, and in the midst of opposition and assent, search out the real person. So for the past 12 years, though I've looked for this thing called karma, I've never found so much as a particle of it the size of a mustard seed. Now this kind of um, uh, language, I think, captures very well precisely this dichotomy between being a submissive devotee of a particular school or teacher or teaching and... On the other hand, this rather more radical injunction to wake up to who you really are. And it's quite clear on which side of the equation Lynch would like to um, place his own emphasis. Now, what I'd like to explore is where this dichotomy begins within Buddhism itself. And here we need to go back to um, the very earliest tradition that we have, namely the one recorded in the Pali Canon. And I have brought along one or two little pamphlets (laughs) to to, uh, refer to, to illustrate this point. And I'm going to tell this really as, as a story. I'm going to start um, with a text called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It's the, the discourse on the great passing, or in other words, the Buddha's last days. It's the 16th discourse of the, uh, the Diga Nikaya, the, the long discourses. It's a very famous text. And um, we'll just start there and keep going. Now, in the, Buddha's, in the last months of the Buddha's life, he spent his final vasa, or rains at a city called Vaishali, which was to the north of the Ganges. And um, it seems as though he was heading back to his homeland. Again, the background is too complex to go into here. But he gets to Vaishali, he finds in fact that he can no longer stay in the um, place called Gables or the gabled roofed house where he normally resided. He stays in the garden of the town prostitute called Ambapali. And when the rains come, he says to the few disciples who are still with him, You go off and find somewhere in the city some some lay supporters and they'll put you up for the rains. I'm going to go and stay outside the city walls in the village of Beluva. So he and Ananda, 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 his attendant, spend the rains in Beluva. And it's during this rainy season that he falls very seriously ill. And He recovers from this illness, but he's clearly been very uh, weakened by whatever it was. And so the text says, And then the Buddha, having recovered from his sickness, as soon as he felt better, went outside and sat on a prepared seat in front of his dwelling. Then Ananda came to him, sat down at one side and said, Lord, I have seen you in comfort, and I have seen your patient enduring. And my body was like a drunkard's. I lost my bearings, and things were unclear to me because of your sickness. The only thing that was of some comfort was the thought, the Buddha will not attain the final Nibbana until he has made some statement about the order of monks. But Ananda, says the Buddha, What does the order of monks expect of me? I have taught the Dhamma, Ananda, making no distinction between inner teachings and outer teachings. The Buddha has no teacher's closed fist in respect of doctrines. If there's anyone who thinks I shall take charge of the order, or the order should refer to me, then let that person make some statement about the order. But I don't think in such terms. So why should I make a statement about the order? Ananda, I am worn out. I am old now. One who has traversed life's path. I have reached the end of my days, which is the age of 80. Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps, so my body is kept going by being strapped up. It's only when I withdraw my attention from outward things by the cessation of certain feelings and enter into a signless concentration that I know any comfort. Therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how does a monk live as an island unto himself, with no other refuge? Here, Ananda, a monk abides contemplating the body as body earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, and having put aside all hankering and fretting for things, and likewise with regard to feelings and mind and mental objects. That is how you live as an island unto yourself. And those who now in my time or afterwards live in this way, they will reach the highest if they are desirous of learning. So again, it's interesting, he says that when the chips are down, which they are here, both in terms of his own health, in terms of his own exile, which is in fact the case now, the only thing that you can rely upon is yourself. And as usual, the English translation slightly fudges that. The Pali says very explicitly that your atta, yourself is your refuge. That the Dhamma, and the Dhamma here obviously means uh, the teachings, the practices that you have internalized within yourself. That's the only thing in the end that you can rely upon. It's rather striking that he doesn't say take refuge in the Sangha. No mention of the Sangha, or the other monks. There's no mention of the Buddha here because the Buddha is nearly dead. The only thing you can rely upon is yourself. And this, of course, is a very famous injunction in self-reliance. This is very close to what Lynch is saying, really. To be a true person with no status. A couple of months later, after the Buddha and Ananda and Anuruddha, who are two brothers, close uh, relatives of the Buddha, they head north now, uh, out of Vaishali, into the province of Mala. And Mala is the province of Kosala, just south of Shakya, which was the Buddha's homeland. But that's as far as they get. And in Parva, which is one of the two main towns in Mala, the Buddha has a meal offered to him by Kunda the Blacksmith, uh, and the meal consists of what's called Sukaramadava, um, which Western translators have an awful trouble with, but basically it means tender pork. Um, the vegetarian contingent likes to translate it as something like saddleback mushroom. <laughs> But in any case, the Buddha eats his, um, his, uh, his pork chops or whatever <laughs> and falls violently ill. And then they manage to make it as far as uh, Kusinara, or what is now modern-day Kushinagar. And there the Buddha is laid down between two sal trees. And that really is his deathbed. But nonetheless, it continues for a few more days, giving instruction receiving visitors. And then shortly before he dies, he says, And the Lord said to Ananda, Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this. For what I have taught and explained to you as the Dhamma and the discipline will at my passing, be your teacher. In other words, the Buddha has no intention to appoint a successor, that his legacy is what he leaves behind in terms of what he has taught, both the ideas, the body of ideas, the body of practices, which in the early tradition are called the Dhammakāya, took on other meanings later, but in other words, the corpus of the Dhamma, that is what you now refer to. In other words, and again, remember that Dhamma means law, one of its meanings. The Buddha, as it were, um, established a certain set of values, principles, ideas, uh, guidelines, and they were, as it were, the, the framework within which the community and each individual within the community regulated their collective and individual lives with reference just to that, not to anybody's authority who somehow appointed the boss. And then we come just a few lines later to uh, the Buddha's famous final words, which he utters just before he dies Vayudharma Sankara Apamadena Sampatita, which means something like condition things break down, tread the path with care. The famous translation of Rice Davis is Work out your salvation with diligence. Unfortunately, there's no word salvation in there. Diligence, care, heedfulness. But again, it's an injunction to, as it were, walk the path in your own light with your own understanding, fully aware that the world is a very... um, uh, a fra- fragile and unreliable place. Everything in it will collapse and break down and end. So with that keen awareness of impermanence, tread the path. But M- our Master Kuzan, our teacher in Korea, um, would constantly emphasize this. In the Zen hall in, in Songkwangsak, we had a it was, it was this beautiful place in the middle of this beautiful forests cut off from the world, deadly quiet, except in the meditation hall they had a great big mechanical clock <laughs> which would go click, click, click. And I got to know exactly when it was 21 minutes too because it would go click, and then it would strike the hour and And the westerners would always repeatedly go to the Zen master and say look we'd very much like to offer the meditation hall an electric clock (laughs) and his reply would always be the same he'd say no the clock is teaching you the Dharma every tick of that clock is telling you that you have one less second to live. (laughs) We always had to put up with the clock. No way around the clock. And so then the Buddha dies. And um, Ananda and the others then begin to prepare the funeral pyre. It's a rather long, complicated story around that, which I won't go into. But then, after seven days of doing uh, various rituals, which were actually conducted by the local Brahmins of Mala, just as they're about to light the pyre, the text continues, Now just then, the venerable Kasapa the Great, Mahakashapa, was travelling along the main road from Parva to Kusinara with a large company of monks. And leaving the road, the venerable Kassapa the Great sat down under a tree and a certain Arjivaka, that's a member of another sect, chanced to be coming along the main road. And he had picked up a coral flower in Kusinara, a sort of heavenly flower. The venerable Kassapa saw him coming and said, Friend, do you know of our teacher? Yes, I do, said the Ajivaka. The ascetic Gautama passed away a week ago, and I picked up this heavenly flower there. And those monks who had not yet overcome their passions wept and tore their hair. But those monks who were free from craving endured this mindfully and clearly aware, saying, All compounded things are impermanent. What is the use of all this? And sitting in the group was one called Subada, who had gone forth as a monk late in life, and he said to the other monks, Enough, friends, don't weep and wail. We are well rid of that great ascetic. We were always bothered by his saying, It is fitting for you to do this. It is not fitting for you to do that now we can do what we like and and not do what we don't like now this passage is very telling Um, it's rather curious that uh, Mahakasyapa is somehow following the Buddha he's a week behind and he's come with a bunch of monks and now, Mahakasyapa is of course important in the Zen tradition because he is regarded as the first patriarch of Zen. It's the same person, Mahakasyapa. So who was Mahakasyapa? Well, the Zen tradition and the Pali tradition agree on this. Mahakasyapa was a Brahmin who lived in Magadha, south of the Ganges. And he was um, uh, a landowner. He was a farmer. And rather late in his life, he decided to leave his life as a farming Brahmin and become a monk under the Buddha, which is what he did. So he was, in a way, someone who came on the scene rather late. It's difficult to get an exact dating but my sense is that Mahakashapa probably didn't join the community until maybe the last ten or so years of the Buddha's life. So quite late on. And here he is now, trailing behind Ananda and Anuruddha and the Buddha. And he's arrived on the scene. And in fact what happens is that one of his followers races ahead into Kusinagara and says to the people who are just about to light the fire, don't light it yet. Wait until Mahakashapa is here and has paid his last respects to the Buddha. Then you can light the pyre. And that's what happens. And the passage with this Subhada who says, oh, now we can do what we like. Great, he's dead. This is like a warning signal for Kasapa. Kassipa subsequently, and unfortunately the text breaks off here and you have to join it again in the Vinaya, which is a text they don't have in the library. But basically Kassipa says, look, uh, we're in trouble now. If people start thinking like this, that now the Buddha's dead, we can do what we like, then all hell will break loose. What we have to do is gather together as soon as we can and record communally, everything that the Buddha taught. And this became what's known as the First Council. And it happened in Rajgir, about, probably about nine months after the Buddha's death. And the canon then continues um, right through to the point of the First Council. In other words, all of these texts in Pali don't end with the Buddha's death, they end with the first council. So there's there's a number of passages which we can um, identify as events that take place between the death of the Buddha and this first council. And what becomes abundantly clear is that there is a power struggle. And the power struggle is between two men. Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, and Mahakasyapa, the former Brahmin who is now, as it were, positioning himself to take control of the Sangha, of the order. Now we have to jump into the samyutta Nikaya. This, this is only half of it. Big, thick text. And there are two very short discourses um, which illustrate this tension very explicitly. This section is called the Nun's Quarters. And it seems fairly certain that this would have occurred probably back in Vaishali, although the text says shravisty, but I think that can't be the case. We needn't go into that. So then in the morning, the text goes, the Venerable Ananda dressed and taking bowl and robe, he approached the Venerable Maha Kasyapa and said, come Kashyapa, let us go to the nuns' quarters. And Kashyapa says, you go Ananda, you're the busy one around here with all the duties. And twice Ananda says, come on, you need to go to the monks' quarters to talk. And so Kasyapa says, okay, very well. And so off they went. So when he arrived, he sat, this is Kasyapa, when Kasyapa arrived, he sat on the appointed seat. Then a number of nuns approached him, paid homage to him, and sat down at one side. And as they were sitting there, the Venerable Mahakasyapa instructed, exhorted, and, and inspired those nuns with a talk on the Dhamma, after which he rose from his seat and departed. Then the nun tulatisa which means fat Tisa, being displeased, expressed her displeasure thus, how can Mahakasyapa think of speaking on the Dhamma in the presence of the Venerable Ananda, the Vidian sage? For Kasapa, for Mahakasyapa to think of speaking on the Dhamma in the presence of Ananda, it, this is just like as if a needle maker a needle peddler would think he could sell a needle to the needle maker. Now, unfortunately, the venerable Mahakasapa overheard the nun Fat Tisa <laughs> making this statement and said to the venerable Ananda How is it, Ananda? Am I the needle peddler, and you the needle maker? Or am I the needle maker, and you the needle peddler? And Ananda says, Oh, please be patient, venerable cussifer. You know how foolish women can be. (laughs) And that's not as sexist as you think. (laughs) Kasapa then says, careful, Ananda, don't give the community occasion to investigate you any further. In other words, don't take sides with the nuns. Why aren't you defending me? And then he says, was it you, Ananda, I'm going to paraphrase, was it you, Ananda, that the Buddha brought forth in the presence of the community and monks and said, "Um, to whatever extent I wish, I dwell in the stainless liberation of mind. Likewise, the Venerable Ananda too dwells in in the stainless liberation of mind. And Ananda says, No, Venerable Sir, it wasn't me about whom the Buddha said that. Then Kasupa says, I was the one, friend, that the Buddha brought forward in the presence of the Sangha, saying, monks, by the destruction of the taints in this very life, I enter and dwell in the stainless liberation of mind. Kasupa too, by the destruction of the taints in this very life, dwells in the taintless liberation of mind realizing it for himself by direct knowledge. Ananda, one might just as well think that a bull elephant, seven cubits high, could be concealed by a palm leaf as to think that my direct knowledge could ever be concealed. But the nun, Fatisa fell away from the noble life, he concludes. The nuns always have to get off badly in the end. Now this is very strange, and it's not—it's um, rather surprising in a way that these this passage is being preserved because it doesn't present Mahakasyapa in the best of all possible lights. You have a sense here of someone affirming his authority in no uncertain terms at the cost of making fun of diminishing of somehow humiliating Ananda. The next passage, which is called the robe, it continues on from this one. It says now, now it says, now the says on one occasion the venerable Mahakasyapa was dwelling in Rajgir in the Bamboo Grove. So this is clearly now when they've got to their destination. They're about to prepare for the first council. And Mahakasyapa is now uh, in the main center the Buddha had there. Now on that occasion, the text says, the Venerable Ananda was wandering on tour in Dakinagiri, which means the southern hills, together with a large community of monks. Now on that occasion, 30 monks, pupils of the Venerable Ananda, most of them young men, had given up the training and had returned to the lay life. And so, Ananda comes back eventually to Rajgir. And this is what Kasapa says to him. Why, Ananda, are you wandering about with these young monks who are unguarded in their sense faculties? One would think that you were wandering about trampling on crops. One would think that you were wandering about destroying families. Your retinue is breaking apart, Ananda. Your young followers are slipping away. You do not know your measure, boy. And Ananda says, Are these not grey hairs growing on my head? What right do you have to call me boy? But, once again, another overweight nun overheard the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) This time it's Tula Nanda, Fat Nanda. And Fat Nanda announces... Mahakasyapa has disparaged Ananda by calling him a boy. How can Mahakasyapa, who was formerly a member of another sect, think to disparage Ananda by calling him a boy? And then Kasyapa has to defend himself, which he does at quite some length. He says, Surely, Ananda, the nun, fat Nanda, made that statement rashly, without consideration. For since I shaved off my hair and beard, I do not recall ever having acknowledged any other teacher except the Buddha as my own. Okay, let's run ahead. And when I had become a monk, when I had gone forth, when I had left the household life, I was traveling along a road when I saw the Buddha sitting at a shrine. And there I recognized that this man was indeed my teacher. I prostrated to my, him myself right there at his feet. And then the Buddha gives him instruction and then Kasapa goes off and, and practices for some time. And finally... Um, he says that having given me this exhortation, the Buddha rose from his seat and departed. For seven days I ate the country's alms food as a debtor, but on the eighth day final knowledge arose within me. And then he went back to the Buddha. The Buddha still sitting beneath the uh, tree at that shrine. And the Buddha, the Buddha sat down and said to me, your outer robe of patches is soft, Kasapa. Venerable sir, let the Buddha, and then Kasapa says, please let the Buddha accept my outer robe of patches out of compassion. Then will you wear my worn out hemp and rags, the Buddha says. I will, Venerable sir, says Kasapa. Thus I offered the Buddha my outer robe of patches and received from him his worn out hemp and rags. Now again, we find this image likewise in Zen. This is the moment of the passing of the robe. Now, Kasapa maintains that in exchanging clothing with the Buddha, that signaled that he was designated the successor. There's, of course, this famous story of Kasapa, of the Buddha on Vulture's Peak, holding up a flower, and Kasapa smiled. But there's no mention of that in any of the Indian literature at all. It's almost certainly a later Chinese edition. And in any case, judging from what we know of Kassapa here, he does not come across as a smiling-at-flowers kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) And then in conclusion to this passage... Kasavar says, If, friends, speaking to Ananda, one could rightly say of anyone, he is a son of the Buddha, born of his breast, born of his mouth, born of the Dhamma, created by the Dhamma, an heir to the Dhamma, it is of me that one could rightly say this. And then he repeats the thing about the elephant. So you have here... um, Clearly, someone who has decided that he is going to take charge. He's setting up the council. He's pretty much sidelining anyone else from having any authority in the community. And he seems to be fairly, um, what's the word, uncompromising, fairly ruthless in his demands. Now we have to jump to the middle-length sayings, and uh, this is, sec- is Sutta number one hundred and eight. And I mean, what this shows is that this information is tucked away in very odd little corners through thousands of pages of text. It's not just that so there's any other stuff that I'm ignoring. This is it. This is all the historical data we have in the canon. Now this is a text called the Gopaka Mogalana Sutta one of those texts that you would read it and you would think well why on earth have they kept that in the canon? It's a very interesting text. It says on one occasion the Venerable Ananda was living in Rajgir not long after the Buddha had attained the final Nibbana. So we get a very clear uh, time here. And Again, I'm not going to go into all of the details, but basically what happens is that Ananda goes begging in the town for alms and he's spotted by a Brahmin called Gopaka Moggallana. And Gopaka Moggallana was one of the ministers of the king who was currently uh, in charge of restoring the fortifications of the city against the attack of another king. And Gopaka Mogalana invites Ananda into his office and he asks him, Ananda, is there any single monk who possesses in each and every way all those qualities that were possessed by Master Gautama? And I replied, Ananda replied to the minister, there is no single monk brahmin who possesses in each and every way all those qualities of the Buddha. Next question. Is there, Ananda, any single monk who was appointed by Master Gautama thus? Now he will be your refuge when I'm gone and whom you now have recourse to. Ananda replies. There is no single monk, Brahmin, who was appointed by the Buddha in that way. Next question. But is there, Master Ananda, any monk who has been chosen by the community and appointed by a number of elder bhikkhus thus, he will be our refuge after the Buddha has gone. No Brahmin, there is no such monk who's been chosen in this way. But if you have no refuge, Master Ananda, how on earth would you ever reach agreement amongst yourselves? We are not without a refuge, Brahmin. We have a refuge. We have the Dhamma as our refuge. So again, Ananda reiterates the point the Buddha made, that you will not be without a teacher, the Dhamma will be your teacher. And it's very pointed, I think, these questions, where these government ministers are now expressing their concern about who in fact is in charge of this group of wandering ascetics. The first council then... um, is convened in the reigns after the Buddha's death and the first thing that is done and it's all controlled by Mahakasyapa is that Ananda is brought forth before the assembly and he's asked now before the Buddha died did he not say that we could relinquish some of the minor rules Ananda said yes did you, Arnanda, ask him what those minor rules were? Arnander says, no, I didn't. <laughs> Implication being, well, it's obvious, isn't it? And then they said to him, that was a mistake, Ananda. Um You must confess that as a mistake before us now. And Arnanda says, I don't see anything there that I did wrong, but because I believe in what we're doing, and out of respect for you, I confess it as a mistake next question Ananda was it not you who persuaded the Buddha to admit women into the community yes that was a mistake Ananda (laughs) Ananda says I do not consider that to have been a mistake but out of my respect for you and my belief in what we're about to be doing here together I confess it before you Ananda was it not the case that You let women's tears fall upon the Buddha's robe. Yes. And so you can see here very clearly, and I'm citing this from my memories in the Vinaya, that um, before the council actually gets underway, before Ananda is asked to recite all of the discourses, he's basically pulled into line. And you can see very clearly here the beginnings of institutional power with a very dominant monk as the man in charge. And in fact, the Pali tradition um, regards Mahakasyapa as the, as the father of the Sangha. Now, father, in Italian we say il papa, right? The Pope the patriarch, dad. (laughs) Kassipha's the one who's in charge. And then the council convenes and Ananda recites everything. And in a way, that is the point at which Buddhism becomes established. But we have a very clear conflict between the creation of an institution governed by a hierarchy of power as opposed to the Buddha's own vision, in which he didn't foresee that happening at all. He didn't want that. And then we have, in conclusion, a very moving verse, which is found in the Terragata, which is the, the verses of the elder monks. Most of which, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them. Most of which are rather pious recapitulations of Buddhist doctrine. But Occasionally you hit a verse which is clearly coming from another place altogether. There's about 35 verses attributed to Ananda and one of them reads like this. He says, They of old have passed away. The new men suit me not at all. Alone today this child doth brood like nesting bird when rain doth fall. That's Caroline Rice Davis's translation. It's a very beautiful verse, and it's completely out of uh, sync with the standard kind of lines you get here. They of old have passed away. In other words, the Buddha, Sariputta, Mogalana, they're dead. The new men, and I don't think we're in any doubt as to who the new men are, i.e. Mahakasyapa and his cronies the new men suit me not at all alone today this child doth brood like nesting bird when rain doth fall in other words he sees himself as this fledgling bird in this nest the parent birds having departed and the rain beginning to fall it's a very powerful image but it's also a very tragic image it's an image of loss it's an image of despair and yet paradoxically would the dhamma have had ha, ha, would the dhamma have survived if ananda had been put in charge of the council i mean we have this story of him going off to the southern hills and his disciples going back to layla And in fact, the only other mention in the whole canon of these southern hills concerns a monk called Purana, who after the first council comes to Rajgir, and he says, I'm not going to listen to what all you people have gone and recited up there. I'm only going to remember what I heard from the Buddha's mouth myself. Which is, again, a rebellious voice. And one wonders, in fact, if the southern hills was not a place where there was an alternative vision being considered, perhaps worked out. We'll never know. It's impossible to say. But the reality is that it was perhaps through having a strong man like Kasupan that the teachings were able to survive. We don't know. But that, I think, is the paradox, Can the Dhamma survive without those institutions that necessarily compromise its core message of freedom, of autonomy, of self-reliance? That's the question. And I think it's a question as much alive for us today as it was two and a half thousand years ago. And it's rather telling that we can reconstruct in quite some detail that very um, conflict back in those days, immediately after the Buddha dies. I've spoken longer than I should have done, and I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.